Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's grab our Bibles and open them to John chapter 3 and stand for the reading of our passage this morning. We're going to be focused on verses... 18 through 21, but because that's the last part of the discourse between Nicodemus and Jesus, I'm going to go back to verse 1 and read through verse 21. So, John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word. We pray that you would build us up through your word, that you would strengthen us, that you would show us our Uh, our faults, our hidden faults, that you would um, rebuke and exhort us by your Holy Spirit's work in us. Lord, bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Be seated. So like I said before, again, we return to this, this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Nicodemus is not just a Pharisee, he's a ruler of the people. He's not just a ruler, he's a scribe, he's an expert in the law. This is, he's, got, um, he's got everything going for him. And Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the one who has always been there by the side of the Ancient of Days. He is wisdom. And here is wisdom talking to somebody who thinks he's wise. And, uh, and Jesus uh, takes him to task. Jesus is revealing to Nicodemus heavenly things after Nicodemus finds it hard to believe just earthly things. Right, That doctrine of regeneration, that you have to be born again by the Spirit, we would call an earthly thing compared to the things that are later revealed by Jesus in our passage. And um, <clears throat> what does Jesus speak about? He speaks about his eternal divinity. He speaks about the coming atoning death that he would undergo to save his people from their sins. He he's talked about the 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 archetypal love of God. He's talked about faith in Christ as the only way of salvation. And now Jesus turns to the topic of judgment. From a conversation about God's love for mankind and the necessity of faith in him, Jesus turns to address another heavenly doctrine, and and this is the doctrine. Those who reject Jesus will be judged. He begins this way, he says, he who believes in him is not judged, he who does not believe has been judged already. Okay, so the bottom line is this, those who believe will not be judged and those who do not believe will be judged. Very simple statement, he said, those who believe, not judged, those who don't believe, judged. Okay, Um, so don't, don't get tied up here in knots. We know who it is who will believe and who it is who will not, those who are born again by the Spirit. That's what Jesus said earlier in the passage. Those born again will believe, those not born again will not believe. That's the behind the scenes work that must occur before a man will believe. We we talked about that a few days ago. Nonetheless, Jesus still speaks of each person's responsibility to believe. You must believe. And as pastors are called to preach the gospel and say, come to faith, come to Jesus, believe in the gospel, right? We hold, the, we hold these, uh, these truths in, uh, they, they, they're not intention, they work perfectly together, right? But we hold the truth of God's sovereignty in salvation and man's responsibility together. And so what Jesus is talking about here is, is belief, Faith in Him. Faith in Him. We've moved from talking about the new birth by the Spirit to talking about a person putting their faith in Christ. And both are uh, equally important, equally uh, true doctrines of Scripture. The Spirit must work, a man must believe. Spirit must work, a man must believe. If a man believes, the Spirit has worked. 
right, if he's not faking it. Um, if the Spirit has worked, a man believes. If a man does not believe, the Spirit has not worked. If the Spirit hasn't worked, a man will not believe. Right? It is, uh, and, and, and it's necessary that a man believe. <laughs> no man, no, and, and you guys realize when I say man, I mean men and women. You guys get that. I use the generic masculine all the time intentionally. Right, so that's a very intention. I like to tie everything to Adam's federal headship, and that's a little way I can do it. Right, so when I say man, I'm I'm speaking of of mankind, generically. Um, and so, no man will avoid the judgment of God if he does not have faith in Jesus Christ. That's the point here. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I mean, can we overemphasize this point? I don't think we can. There's no way to overemphasize that point. One must have faith in Jesus Christ. Believing that, and what is faith? It's believing that, first of all, that he is. Second of all, that he's a rewarder of those who seek him, who go after him, right? That he is Lord, Right, that he has authority over all things, that he has authority especially over your own soul, and that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's critical to faith, that resurrection of Jesus. You must believe that Jesus died and he rose again. Right? And those who believe those things, our text says, are not judged. They are not judged. So what judgment is Jesus talking about here? Why is he mentioning some judgment by some judge? It seems um, it, it's, it's abstract a little bit. Scripture explains it very clearly, and it's a very simple uh, concept that after we die, we stand before God and we are judged. That's the judgment that Jesus is speaking about here. The judgment that we, that every man goes through when they die, right? You die and then what? Judgment. Judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. Now those who are born again understand this and their whole life, pivoted the moment they realized by the work of the Spirit that they were going to have to stand before God after they died and all of their works were going to be revealed before Him. That, that moment, uh, I mean, you, you'll remember the first time you actually, that penetrates your heart and you, you thought about the fact that you would stand before an absolutely holy God who hates every last vestige of sin and that you would have to have an, an answer for his penetrating, absolutely um, just annihilating penetration of pure justice and pure judgment. And, and, then, and then you thought, well, I'm doomed. And then you thought, ah, oh, and then there's Christ. 
And then there's somebody to intercede for me. There's somebody to do what I can't do because I am just, I am a sinner. But if you, if you haven't been born by the, the Holy Spirit, and it, it, you just don't think about death. You do everything you can not to think about, one, just the scariness of death, the, the per- potential annihilation of death, or, but, but certainly not the fact that you would stand before a God who cares about things like righteousness and sin. You just don't think about that. That is not on your Facebook feed. You know, prepare to, prepare to die, unless you're reading my Facebook feed. <laughs> so, immediately upon death, think of this, immediately upon your death, you will be judged by God. Those who believe in Jesus, their souls will go to be with God in his happy presence. It will be an eternal Sabbath. It will be an entrance into uh, a joy that you've never even come to close to feeling in this life. Those who did, did not believe in God, their souls will immediately be cast from the benevolent presence of God and go to hell. Immediately upon their death. Both the souls of the happy in heaven and the miserable in hell, right? Those immediate judgment, souls of the happy go to be with God, souls of the unbelievers go to hell, right? Those who are happy in heaven and the miserable in hell will then wait for the resurrection of their bodies, right? Those bodies that went in the ground, they're just decaying in the ground, they're falling apart, but those bodies will be raised on what day? Those bodies are raised on the day that Jesus returns for that purpose, right? For that resurrection. Those bodies will be raised on that day when Jesus comes back as he promised. And then the final judgment comes. The final judgment. Souls and bodies rejoined back together. Right? Souls and bodies rejoined back together in everything we've done. Everything we've ever thought, every action we've done, every, every intent of the thoughts of our hearts will be revealed at that moment. Every unrighteous deed, every righteous deed will be laid out, right? Ecclesiastes 12.14 teaches us that God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil, every act... Those things that you know that nobody else knows, God knows and will lay them open. The Apostle Paul speaks of that day when God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And again in 1 Corinthians, when the Lord comes, he will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose even the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God, or not. And then the final judgment will be announced. Again, the Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans, Romans 2. He, 
He says this, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Anger and pointed anger. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is, and this is an astonishing but, but obvious statement, there is no partiality with God. You can't hoodwink God on the day of judgment. He has an absolutely, perfectly analyzing, penetrating gaze. He knows your thoughts even before you think them. He knows everything you've ever thought and remembers it. So this is the judgment that Jesus is speaking about in the verses that we look at today in John. Every person will stand before an absolutely impartial judge, a judge who is perfectly just, and the only way of escaping a sentence of death and eternal punishment is to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. How does one get that clothing of righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ alone? By faith alone. Believing in Jesus. Only those who believe, who trust, who love, who live for and honor and give thanks to Jesus Christ will be saved. Now some of you may be thinking that this seems crazy, old-fashioned, outlandish. You know, what did we step, you know, 300 years in the past for the sermon today? Why isn't this just about five steps to a good marriage? Um... What I have spoken of up to this point and testified to you just now is the gospel. This is everything. This is the gospel. This is the Christian faith, right? All those other things are, are important, but peripheral to this gospel. This is the good news. There is salvation in Jesus, and it is by faith alone. It is by faith in Jesus Christ. There is a solution to your problem of bearing sin before a holy God, and that solution is Jesus' death in your place, which is credited to you as righteousness when you believe. God has supplied the way of escape. This is the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not primarily about better marriages and overcoming depression and getting your vibes on during worship and, you know, much much like you would in a session of, of hot yoga. It's, that's not the Christian faith. It's much deeper than that. It's all about sin. 
It's all about the, the absolute reality that there is a coming judgment day. And all of you will stand before God. And those who preach to you and those who eldered you will be held account for your souls too. all about sin, the coming judgment, and the wonderful provision of God of a Savior. He provided the Savior. It cost you nothing. He provided it. Your faith is a gift. But our hearts deceive us, don't they? Our hearts deceive us. They try to get us not to think about the main issue, to remain distracted always being distracted away from that main issue. The things of the world delight us and, and the, the, the intensity of relationships distract us and our love for this and that and the idol factory of our hearts is pumping out these idols that are trying to draw away our attention from the, the coming judgment day and standing before the one true living God. Um, John Owen, in our reading for Triple B this past a week, said this. He said, Many men live in, in the dark to themselves all their days. Whatever else they know, they know not themselves. They know their outward estates, how rich they are, the condition of their bodies as to health and sickness, but as to their inward man and their principles as to God and eternity, they know little or nothing of themselves. Indeed, few labor to grow wise in this matter. Few study themselves as they ought. Few study themselves. Few are acquainted with the evils of their own hearts as they ought. And the person who won't, who does not, or who is lazy to, or just doesn't study himself, will never see his own sins, and therefore will never see a need of a Savior. By the Spirit's work, we are given eyes to see ourselves as we really are. And when we do not have this apprehension of ourselves, we are horrified. And, and, and when we do have that apprehension of ourselves, when the Spirit works and shows us what we really are, we're horrified. And then we know we need a Savior. We know it. We feel it. And God himself is that Savior. That judge is that Savior. He is both just and the justifier. He is both the one who raises that sword and the one who takes away the sword. And wonderfully, by faith in Jesus Christ, death loses its sting, fear is cast out by faith, and then to die is gain. And that is the most insane statement in all of Scripture. To die is gain. That's countercultural. That goes against every fiber of your being, which most of the time of every day, you're trying to keep yourself alive. That's why you eat. Right? And here... The Apostle Paul is like, to, to die is gain. But as, but as Jesus teaches here, only those who have faith have reason not to fear. 
those who do not give Jesus a second thought, those who do not believe in him, those, uh, they, they have reason to fear death. They have reason to fear death. They have reason to fear the sting of death. They have reason to believe that, that, um, that death is no gain at all. In fact, death is all loss. They will find that death is not just soul sleep or some soft, vacuous annihilation. They will... They will Those without faith will find themselves in the grip of an angry God who loves his son so deeply that he will punish those who reject his son with absolute eternal strength forever. That's how much the father loves his son. And that's how much he, as a jealous God, is offended when his son is rejected by those he came to save. Those who belittle the kindness of God, those who, who throw off all the outpourings of his, well, those who accept from God all of his outpourings of common grace, but then who just hate and spurn the special grace that he gives to us in Jesus Christ. That stupendous gift of an atoning sacrifice. The stupendous gift that actually dealt with your sins. Not abstractly, but very, very really through the pain and the bloodshed of the Son of God. This is the gospel, and, and you will one day know what I'm preaching is right. When you die and you stand before God. Uh, this is the teaching of God's Word. This is what it is all about. And along with the, the Apostle Paul, I say, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. To whom? To everyone who believes. Now, what does Jesus mean now when He says, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Judged already. How has the one who will not believe or who does not believe, how have they been judged already? Well, Ryle explains it very simply. He says this sentence means that the man who refuses to believe on Christ is in a state of condemnation before God even while he lives. He's condemned. He's living under the wrath of God even now. In unbelief, he's living under the wrath of God. He's already, he's already, that God's anger is focused at him as it will be eternally if he does not repent and believe. Ryle goes on, he says, his sins are upon his head. He is reckoned guilty and dead before God and there is but a step between him and hell. Faith takes all a man's sins away. Unbelief keeps them all on him. Those who will not believe in Jesus Christ live under the judgment of God. Do you think about that? Do you think of them just sort of as, a, as in a neutral zone? Right? There's those who've made it to hell because they died and not in Christ. And there are those who believed 
and they've been transported into Christ's kingdom. But there's this whole like middle ground of people in a neutral zone who just need to, you know, fall into one camp or the other. No, no. There are those who believe and those who don't believe, and those who believe are transported into God's kingdom, and those who don't are living under the judgment of God. Being handed over to Satan, being, having minds blinded by, by Satan's work. What does it look, look like to live under the judgment of God? Can you see it when someone is living under the judgment of God? Well, no. Not always. Not always. Sometimes a person's sins go before him and, and they live to curse God and denounce him. But most often it just looks like your average person who gets up and works and eats and sleeps and watches the nightly news. Right? Somewhat moral person, but living under the, the dreaded judgment of God because of unbelief. What is common about both of those categories of people is they have no fear of God, the one who outwardly hates God and the one who just goes about his business and doesn't really think much about God. What's common is they have no fear of God. They do not consider death in the coming judgment. They live a life that's devoid of two things. They will not honor God and they will not give him thanks. Very simply, that's, that's what brings those two, those two together. It's just as offensive to God for somebody to be cursing him to his face as to someone being quiet and not giving him thanks. That's offensive to him. His glory redounds about the whole universe. And silent mouths are inappropriate in light of that glory. That is what living under the judgment of God looks like, not honoring God and not giving him thanks. Living under the judgment of God, living without the covering of Christ's righteousness is manifested in this way. No thoughts about God, and though you know he exists, not being willing to humble yourself to give him thanks. Not saying at any point in your life, thank you, God, for making me. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for saving me from my sins. It's being, being dead set against mouthing those words. It's very simple. This is the common denominator of those whose unbelief is overly, overtly evil and hostile and those whose unbelief is just average, everyday, lazy disinterest. No thanksgiving. Both, though, are equally guilty for the reasons laid out in the next verse. Jesus says of those who do not believe in him, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness, right? Rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So those who do not believe are explained by Jesus, who knows the hearts of all men, right? He says, unbelievers love darkness more than they love him who came into the world to die for their sins. They love darkness. That's very simple. 
We can even boil it down to this. Unbelievers love their sin more than they love God. Right? Very simple. Unbelievers love their sin. They love that darkness. They love their sin more than they love God. And because they love their sin and the light exposes that sin, they they sin more as an expression of their contempt for the way God exposes their sin. What they hate about the light is that those sins are shown to be what they really are. They're evil and deserving of eternal death. They sin, the sin they love so much, their lusts, their greed, their hatreds, their drunkenness, their ego, their boasting, their racism, their murder, their abortions, their pride, their vanity, The list could go on and on and on. Those sins that they love is revealed as a steaming heap of dung, right? Hated by God. Hated by God. How could God think so badly about what they consider to be their precious, right? That's how the unbeliever thinks. My precious, you know? My abortions. How could God think so badly about something that was genuinely difficult for me? How could God think so badly about about me? I'm just human. Right? And and, and humans are self-centered. And yeah, maybe I'm grouchy all the time to my family. But, man, it, before coffee, it's, it feels good to be grouchy. Or, or you know, you can, you, can, you can imagine people saying, how could, how could God view my sin this way when it feels so good? Right? My sin feels so good. Like Owen said, sin has its rewards. Right? Those rewards are tasty. It feels really good to go after these sins. How could God then come into this and, and mess up my bliss and say, it's evil and if you don't repent, you will be in hell. Why is God so judgmental? Why would God not affirm me? And why would God not affirm my laws? And why would God... N- God not affirm my preferences and my self-actualized life. I'll show him. I'll show him. I'll show him what what an, an onerous, meddling God he is. And I'll go on sinning. And I'll go on hiding in the darkness. And I'll go on I'll I'll go on blaspheming him with every one of my thoughts. And I'll show him. And so, they love the darkness. And that's, that's the sort of mindset of the attitude of living in darkness. And so they reject the easy and good remedy supplied by God himself for their salvation. Instead, they choose to love that which will lead to their condemnation. 
Now let's take, you know, stop and take stock of ourselves for a moment. Unbelievers love to walk in darkness, to live a life where their sins are concealed. Right? That's what unbelievers do. They, they, they conceal. Believers, on the other hand, are said to walk in the light. Yet, we have the remainders of the old man in us, don't we? We have indwelling sin and a heart that so easily deceives us. We who are Christians are often in the business of concealing our sins. Right? That's what we do. We conceal our sins and we walk just like the unbeliever walks. We conceal them. And so we do not bring them into the light of Christ because the light of Christ exposes our sins. Why do we, Christians, conceal our sins? Why do we often resemble those who love their sins, who serve their sins, who are given over to their sins, and who hate God? We so often look exactly like that. Well, indwelling sin is the cosmic answer, and you can read Owen on that if you can understand it. Right? But... The flesh wages war with the Spirit, and we have a law within us that urges us to do evil even when we want to do good. That law is in there with us, fighting and fighting and fighting, the Spirit and the flesh, Spirit and flesh, going back and forth. And the reason, at the end of the day, we conceal our sins is because we're proud. We are proud. We are so proud. That's the other answer. We want the respect of our fellow brothers and sisters and we'll pursue that end even if that means we have to erect a facade of righteousness for others to see. We put up false fronts, don't we? We put up false fronts. We clean the house if we're going to have visitors over, right? We make sure it's spotless like it never is the rest of the year. And we do that with our, with our character, Right? We put up a false front, and that is because we still have a secret love for sin. Sins, though, for which Christ died. Ugh. I mean, this is so bleak, isn't it? The, the unbeliever is much more respectable than the Christian who conceals his sin. The unbeliever does not have a taste of the glory of Jesus Christ and the wonderful peace of salvation from his sins. The believer knows of these things, yet in terrible you know, in terrible contradiction to that, still keeps around a few pet sins, pride. I'm going to, hey, no, I'm going to be a little sassy. I'm going to be a proud person, right? Or I, I, I'm going to, I love gossip. I mean, I could not give up gossip. I got to have my talk with my sisters and just, you know, I've got to, you know, it's concern. It's so I can pray, right? Lust. How many men here have a lust for images? Greed. How many men here spent more time, how many women spent here more time looking at how the stock market was fluctuating than reading scripture this week? Hopefully no one. What about flirtatiousness? You know, maybe you're a flirt. 
Maybe you just like to manipulate people with your emotions a little bit. And that's your Christian sin. That's, the, that's your personality. That's just, you know, that's, that's, that's your precious. Laziness. Well, this ought not to be. This ought not to be. How can we change this? And, the, and it's laid out for us in this passage. Bring those sins into the light. Bring them into the light. Bring them out into the open, into the light. Well, how, you say? That's really abstract. What does it mean to bring it into the light? And light is capitalized, and it's light is Jesus, so how do we bring our sins out? I mean, what does this mean? Well, here's what it means. First, confess your precious sins to God in prayer. Confess them to God. Name them as he names them. They're evil. Tell him you've committed evil. Right? Don't be precious with your sins in the, in, the, in the sight of God. God hates those sins. And so you have to name them as he names them. They're abominations. They're terrible. They're soul-destroying. So name them like that to him. Second, by confessing your sins to the elders of the church. That's the other way. And this is where the pride kicks in. We can all go before God, which is mind-boggling to say that. We're all comfortable taking our sins before God. Don't feel sort of any, any uh, you know, fear there. But, but then when it comes to confessing our sins to the, the men that God has put in place, suddenly we're like, no! Not a chance. My pride, could n- I, my pride would not go through that abuse. No way. Right? But, but we should confess them to the elders of the church, those men God has ordained and put in office in order to keep watch over your souls. How in the world can we keep watch over your souls when you're concealing everything? How can the presbytery keep watch over my soul if I'm concealing everything from the presbytery? Those men, the elders, have a grievous task to love you by telling you the truth. I've been so encouraged by some of you who have willingly come to the elders and confessed and then asked for accountability. It's glorious. I'll say it time and time again, that's why the elders, that's, that, if we don't get that every once in a while, we live in a desert land, right? It is our joy when somebody when God moves in somebody's spirit and they want to be just unburdened with their sin and they confess it. And everybody thinks, well, we're going to, we're going to cry with you and we're going to say, yeah, man, I, I, that is convicting to me. I mean, what fruits when you go to your elders and humble yourself like that? But there are others who, who go on concealing sins, and because one of those sins may be harboring resentment toward those who keep watch over your souls, you refuse to humble yourselves before them. Right? One of the sins you may be harboring is resentment against your elders and pastors. And that will keep you from humbling yourselves over those who would help you. If you're angry with the men God has put over you in the Lord, stop and consider that it may be your sin and your desire to keep those sins concealed that may be causing that anger. Think about that. Seriously think about that. 
As the Apostle Paul said to the Galatians, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's what he said to the Galatians. They were, I mean, he was calling them out for turning away from the gospel. He's going after them. And, you know, we, we assume, well, Paul's just this dude who, who likes to beat up on people, right? To lord over those. No, he went there in fear and trembling. Right? He was afraid when he showed up at a church, knowing that he would have to say the hard truths of Scripture. And then, and then they, they, you know, the Galatians are, are pushing back on him, and he's like, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Your enemy. Should you not love me for this? Third, here's another way to bring your sins out into the light by constantly remembering the fight we are in. Right? That should lead you to be, wa- be watchful and to pray. Just remember that you're battling. Right? There's no off time for the Christian in the battle against sin. There is not. Fourth, know yourself. Study yourself. As John Owen says time and time again, a person must be acquainted with his own spirit, his natural frame, his temper, his lusts, corruptions, his natural sinful or spiritual weakness, And when he finds it, where his weakness lies, he may be careful to keep a distance from all occasions of sin. Know yourself. Be realistic about yourself. Don't think too highly of yourselves, right? We are all miserable sinners who sin terrible sins, right? But know yourself. And then fifth, walk with Christ. Walk with Christ. Again, Owen says, when the soul is exercised to communion with Christ and to walking with him, he drinks new wine and cannot desire the old things of the world for he says the new is better. The new is better, right? These new things, this clear conscience, this good conscience, this this delighting in the glories of Christ, not having to always have the guilt of having looked at pornography as I try to pray and read my Bible. But this week I have a clear conscience. And the, the reading and communing with Jesus was sweet because of that. That man tastes every day how gracious the Lord is and therefore longs not after the sweetness of forbidden things which indeed have none. He that makes it his business to eat daily of the tree of life will have no appetite for other fruit though the, the tree that bears them send, uh, seem to stand in the midst of paradise. And so it's not your sinful, sinlessness Right? It's not your sinlessness that will prove that you are a child of God. It is what you do with your sinfulness that will prove it. The unbeliever will continue to love darkness, to do everything in his power to protect what he considers to be the most pleasant thing, which is a sin. He'll go on thinking that all I have, to, all, all I have said today, right, all that's been said from this pulpit is religious hogwash and overkill and just meant to be a killjoy. He'll continue to use his sin as a weapon against the God he hates. The believer will come to the light, will treasure the pearl of great price, will crave the things that 
craved the things that characterized the holiness of their father. Any vestiges of the old man that appear in his life, he will deal with. I've got to deal with this, right? I've been watchful. I've been praying. I've recognized this. Now I'm going to deal with it. Through those ways that I just outlined. He will grieve that his sin shows that he has become weary with God. He'll grieve as a son who disrespected his father. He'll take up the weapon of the word and slay the old man with it. That's what the believer will do. The believer won't just luxuriate in his sin like a pillow. The believer will get bloody and fight it. Finally, Jesus speaks about the believer in the last verse, 21. He says, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So whereas the unbeliever conceals his sins in darkness, the believer brings them into the light, and he wants to know that his works are approved by God, right? He's, he's the little kid who comes up to his father and says, look what I did. Look what I made. Aren't you proud of me? He wants to know that his works are approved of God, having been wrought in God, as the text put, puts it. He, he really wants to know whether his habits of life are really godly. He really wants to know if he, what he's doing is pleasing to God. He really wants to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ, and so he brings his works into the light, and when the light shines on them, he finds out whether they're faithful or faithless, whether they're good or evil, whether they please the Lord or anger the Lord. This is the life of the Christian, to be always considering God, to be always taking stock, to be always self-examining because you want to be pleasing to him. To many, that sounds like a terrible life, the life of morbid introspection, a life where big brother God is continually looking over your shoulder. That is what we would expect of somebody who thinks God is a terrible master. Right? What the unbeliever doesn't realize is that all of their ambition is just dedicated to, is just them being dedicated to the latest fad. What a miserable life. What a miserable life. But the ambition of the believer is to acknowledge the God who has ever and always been there, superintending the very ends of the earth and the farthest, farthest reaches of the universe, right? The God who is love and having as their ambition to please him. How sad that at, at the end of their days, they will look at their pursuits and not realize uh, how useless they have been. They will not realize that they could have tasted and seen the Lord's goodness, but instead gave their strength to money, to pornography, to bitterness, to self-pity. That's what they gave their strength to. Kim Kardashian will stand before God and appeal to her, to her body for his approval. Warren Buffett will stand before God and appeal to his earnings and his benevolent works. Pope Francis will stand before God and appeal to his works. 
you will stand before God. And what will you, what, what will you appeal to? Your football allegiances? Your beauty? Fleeting as it is? Your kindness? Your family name or reputation? Will you appeal to your height? Now, the only appeal that will carry any weight on that day will be this one, Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's it. That's it. That is the message that this proud Pharisee Nicodemus needed to hear, and he heard it from the very mouth of God. Think of this. This is all said to a Pharisee. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You must believe in Jesus to have eternal life. Wonderfully. Wonderfully, then, we receive some confirmation that Nicodemus went from a man who, who wondered how can these things be to a man who believed in Jesus. In chapter 7 of John's Gospel, Nicodemus defends Jesus right after the other Pharisees pose this question. So Nicodemus stands up right after this and defends Jesus. The Pharisees say, no one, has, no one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? That's when Nicodemus stands up and, and defends Jesus. And then in chapter 19 of John's Gospel, we see Nicodemus team up with Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, referring to what we just went through, also came. Where'd they go? They went to, where'd they go? They went to the grave of Jesus. They went by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes above a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. We take these courageous and tender works to be indicative of Nicodemus wanting to have his deeds come into the light. Jesus' words spoken long ago were not just for Nicodemus. They are for all of you here in this building today. Will you believe them? Will you put your faith in Christ or will you stay asleep, un, unfazed by the slow train coming? Put your faith in Jesus Christ and you will have confidence to stay to stand in the day of judgment. God the Father will see that you have loved his Son, that you have been clothed in his righteousness, and he will say to you, well done, well done, well done. Come, come rest. Amen?